and welcome everyone to the Allison podcast, where we share the stories of lung cancer patients and their caregivers, as well as the work of doctors and researchers in this field. Today, we have the great honor and privilege of having Mr. Angus Pratt with us. Angus is a Surrey, BC native, an avid writer, artist, and runner, and a lung cancer patient advocate. After receiving his diagnosis of lung cancer in 2018, Angus became a vocal advocate in the lung cancer community. Known for his trademark red toque, Angus regularly shares experiences and insights on patient and research panels, and today we have the honor of having you on our podcast. Angus, thank you so, so much for your time today. To introduce the moderators, my name is Maya Sharma. And I'm Priyanka Santo, and we're with the American Lung Cancer Screening Initiative, a national 501c3 nonprofit working to raise awareness of lung cancer and lung cancer screening. So Angus, can you please introduce yourself and share your background? My name is Angus Pratt, and I was born at an early age in Scotland, so I am not a Surrey native, <laughs> at least not this Surrey. <laughs> I spent a bunch of my life wandering around um, the world, spent some time in northern Saskatchewan, spent a few years in Panama, and then after another stint in northern Saskatchewan, moved out here to British Columbia, where I worked as a web designer and first aid attendant for a few years before I received a diagnosis of male breast cancer, <laughs> which is not what this podcast is about, but it's how my journey started. Thank you for sharing, Angus. I think that sort of brings us into our first question. Uh, if you'd be comfortable, could you please talk to us about your your lung cancer journey? Sure. Like like a lot of my peers, my lung cancer was an incidental finding. Mine was unusual in that it was incidental to another cancer, male breast cancer, which is extremely rare. But I was one of the 200 men in Canada that get it each year. Um, in the workup, they found a mass in my chest. And when they did a biopsy, discovered that it was not metastatic breast cancer, which was the initial suspicion, but rather lung cancer, an adenocarcinoma. And that started me on the journey, on my journey with lung cancer. And would you be able to talk a little bit about how your, you know, male breast cancer journey maybe differed or was similar to your lung cancer journey? <laughs> All the time. Yeah, it, it's a huge contrast. The whole breast cancer journey was, uh, there was a patient navigator, there was all kinds of supports in place and all sorts of interesting pieces, even though it was a pink world and there were some interesting things that happened because it's so geared towards women. It was a very different experience with lung cancer. I was very much on my own, um, navigating my way through the system. My breast cancer was relatively minor. It was diagnosed as stage one. There was a sentinel lymph node um, discovered when I had mastectomies done, but but it was relatively minor. So the lung cancer was diagnosed at stage 3C. And that became the immediate focus of treatment. My initial treatment was aggressively curative, consisting of chemo radiation for six weeks, sort of the five years ago, the standard of practice. Then I was given compassionate access to one of the brand new immunotherapy drugs, Dravalmolab. And after that, had my bilateral mastectomies for the breast cancer, started on tamoxifen and had a relatively... I was feeling a whole lot better. In fact, I was sort of thinking this thing might actually be survivable. Um, and then nine months in, we saw further progression. Um, the tumors, some of the smaller nodes and nodules that they were looking at grew. And so I was taken off the Dravalma lab and washed out the tamoxifen and started on one of the targeted therapies, 
um, afatinib, which there are some Exxon 20 patients that are getting it now, but at the time, and, and I probably only met four or five patients um, that are actually receiving that drug. Most TKI patients are receiving, or EGFR positive patients are receiving osimertinib, which is a lot more expensive, and and but has fewer side effects and actually has some indications that it protects the brain from metastasis, which is pretty exciting for those of us that expect that that's where the lung cancer might go. <laughs> it's it's a way of, of protecting us from that. So I, I do need to say that at diagnosis, I was given a prognosis of, you know, the median is, is 17 months for that stage at that time, and 5% make it to five years. So five years just ticked over in May of this year. So I am celebrating that I am one of the lucky ones. I am in remarkably good health, as my oncologist likes to say, you are remarkably unremarkable. So I'll take that. And we, we know, for example, that you're an avid runner running in things like the CIVC uh, run for the cure. And, you know, I'm just sort of, I guess, speaking to, you know, maybe some of your risk factors, you know, one of very healthy overall, probably contributed to some of that emotional shock, uh, having received the, the diagnosis. If you're comfortable, uh, would you mind sharing a little bit about the feelings that you had upon you know, receiving the diagnosis? You mentioned you when you were diagnosed with lung cancer, that it was very much almost like, to maybe paraphrase, being thrown into the deep end, where you didn't have that same support that you maybe had from the breast cancer uh, community. Would you mind sharing a little bit about just personally what all that was like? Sure. So one of the things that I encourage other patients to think a lot about is is a support network and, and teamwork. You can't, this is not something you can do on your own. It takes other people. And I'm, part of that is a medical team, an oncologist and radiologist that you trust, but also family and friends that support you in, in the journey that you're on. And I was really fortunate for my six weeks of, of chemo um, going every week, a different person took me and sat with me for those three hours in the chemo room every week. Fantastic opportunity to get to know some of my friends in a really intimate setting and, and an exposure for some of them for the first time to what it was like to be a cancer patient. So I was really fortunate in, in having that kind of support. I almost immediately got involved. I was a web designer, as I mentioned. And so I almost immediately got involved with the Canadian Cancer Society's online forum, um, cancerconnection.ca. And I started posting how my journey was going, both from a male breast cancer awareness perspective, but also I noticed that there were not very many lung cancer patients posting on that website. And, and I thought, you know, there's 30,000 people that are diagnosed annually with lung cancer. Surely there should be one or two that are willing to talk about it, but there weren't at that time. And, and it's slowly grown. We now have a small community there, and, and it's been interesting navigating that. I was outspoken right from the beginning, got sick and tired of the question, well, you were a smoker, weren't you? Or you weren't a smoker, were you? Almost immediately, I got involved with the wrong question campaign with the Lung Health Foundation here in Canada and the Lung Cancer Canada. It was a joint campaign. And that really exposed me to the stigma. Everybody from oncologists to researchers and, and just the reluctance and the lack of funding available. So part of my mental journey was, was trying to make 
myself useful and by speaking up that that felt useful to me there are very few things that a cancer patient has control over we're given our medications we're laid in in that we're given our radiation and you know we don't really have very much choice about that but diet exercise and sleep hygiene are three things that we do have control over and for me those were really important to sort of get those under control and and to make sure that I was eating as healthily as I could my mantra as anybody who talks to me is variety and moderation i do not believe in the keto diet or get the sugar out of your diet kind of things but but just variety and moderation i'm not fond of armadillo but i have eaten it so there is variety <laughs> there but but the whole thing is important and then just making sure that i'm getting enough sleep that i'm not letting stress kind of get to me and the exercise piece that started slowly when after my chemo radiation, I was hardly able to walk around the block. And that slowly grew until some friends of mine challenged me to do a coach to 5k program and run for the CIBC run for the cure. And so I worked through the course of the summer, starting off sort of running a hundred meters, walking a hundred meters, running a hundred meters doing that five times. That's literally where I started. And it was not as hard as I thought it would be to build up to 5k. So I'm doing that a couple of times. Well, three times a week is kind of my current schedule on that. I've now participated in three runs for the cure and and three give a breath, which is a fundraiser for Lung Cancer Canada that we do here in Canada in June of each year. Awesome. Thank you, Angus, for sharing. I think we've heard from a lot of lung cancer patients that following their diagnosis, it can be really devastating to receive, you know, a diagnosis, especially if it's not something that, you know, anyone was expecting. And most people aren't, you know, aren't expecting a diagnosis of lung cancer. And, you know, usually people have goals or, or visions for, for what they expect, like in the next 10, 15, 20 years of their lives to look like it. And following the diagnosis, sometimes that can bring a lot of uncertainty. And we, we've heard from, from patients about just how, you know, it took them up a little bit to understand that you know they may not be able to be back to where they were before the diagnosis you know in terms of physical ability and strength but you know you have to you have to start somewhere so your story of you know how you started running and coming back to things that you were doing before the diagnosis is just really really inspiring to hear so thank you and our next question was you know what motivates you to share your lung cancer story so publicly but i think i think you answered a lot of that with the previous response. And so I wanted to ask instead, if you could talk a little bit about the stigma around lung cancer, because I think it's, you know, not talked enough about. And so if you would be willing to kind of talk about what forms does the stigma around lung cancer take and how can we as a community begin to start breaking down the stigma around lung cancer? It's subtle. It always strikes me in really funny places and ways. I I recall uh, I was out for supper with some other lung cancer patients, and we took a picture with the white ribbon in the background, and three of the six participants said, hey, please don't post that on social media um, because my my friends don't know that I have lung cancer. And it was one of those moments where I sort of thought, oh, I do kind of, everybody that I know knows that I have lung cancer. And it was one of those moments when I realized 
you know, there is a lot of stigma and, it, and it's difficult for people to, to, to talk about. There's a sense in which a lot of lung cancer patients feel like they deserve lung cancer um, because they smoke. And that is so far from the truth. Only 15% of smokers get lung cancer. Like it's not, it, there's something else there. And, and we're slowly figuring out what that is. We're slowly elucidating it. But in the meantime, our, our strong prevent lung cancer by not smoking or stop smoking campaigns have been really effective at tying lung cancer and smoking together. And, and there's this sense that of guilt and shame that, that smokers carry, people who have a tobacco addiction, I'm trying to pick up my language and <laughs> clean it up, they feel like they've done something to deserve it. And, and the fact of the matter is they haven't. And, and that it is this combination of other factors um, that have led to their their lung cancer. But the ways that it that it strikes, it's you know just the awareness of lung cancer is is part of it. Because I stand with a foot in both worlds, I'm going to single out CIBC in Canada, which is a major banking institution here, and they're quite happy to support Run for the Cure for breast cancer, but. Canadian cancer organizations have been looking for that kind of major sponsor for a long time for lung cancer research or for lung cancer support. And who wants to be associated with lung cancer? Nobody. Nobody. There, there was a whole thread a couple of days ago on, and again this morning, on, on social media around celebrities and how we need celebrities to speak up. Breast cancer diagnosis, People, you know, women speak up almost instantaneously and, and there's a huge outpouring of sympathy. Mention that you have lung cancer and it's like you are a pariah um, and sent off into never, never land, like you just shouldn't be there. There have been some major moves in the last little while where I think we're starting to see that broken down. And until we do, I think stigma is going to continue. But where it really concerns me is, is in the research side of things. My favorite statistics, my favorite numbers are 25% of all cancer death is lung cancer. And only 6% of research funding in Canada is for lung cancer. And that the, the numbers are exactly reversed for breast cancer, where, and again, I speak as a breast cancer patient also, 25% of cancer research funding is for breast cancer. Um, 6% of death. And I, and I recognize that that doesn't really talk about metastatic breast cancer too. It, it's that five-year survival number, but, but at the same time, we're using the same measuring stick. Only 6% of breast cancer patients die. So there's clearly an inequity there and, a, and something that, that's wrong. And I was sitting at a table at a, at a major immunotherapy conference here in Canada a couple of, a, a year and a half ago, and I asked a group of young researchers why they weren't interested in lung cancer. And I got two answers that really stuck with me. First of all, there's no money, no money to support the research. Um, so it's hard to do lung cancer research. We don't have the cell lines, we don't have the mouse models, and, and it's just difficult. And the second reason, which was for me as an investigator would be absolutely driving me forward is that lung cancer is very heterogeneous and that there it's a very diverse disease and it's hard to under it's hard to study it um, it's complex it's complicated so you know colorectal we're hearing a whole lot about gut microbiome for example and the interactions but nobody's talking about lung microbiome 
I mean, when was the last time you saw a paper presented at a major scientific conference talking about lung microbiome? You haven't yet. It's there. It's it's being studied, but it's not it's not the research dollars aren't there. So right from that, even oncologists will tell you that as lung specialists, they also face that stigma. They are looked down on by their colleagues, which just shocks me. Like you're a professional, you're an expert dealing with a very difficult disease that sees a lot of death, and yet your colleagues have the nerve to look down on you. That's not right. So all of those things make me outspoken about about where we're at and and what we're doing with lung cancer. Yeah, Angus, I think you you raised a lot of really good points there about the subtleties of stigma. One that really resonated with me was your, your story with your friend at dinner. It's always interesting to hear the forms that this takes on, and it always helps us, you know, as advocates, learn from individuals like yourself, patient advocates, just how we can be more mindful on our end to try to combat the stigma. So really appreciate that. Also, you alluded to going to these conferences, these research conferences. We know that you are involved yourself in patient-led research and really wanted to ask you if you could describe some of the current work that you're doing in the lung cancer community and just ways that, that you are raising awareness. So two, there are two components to that right now. One is we have a little social media-driven research group that has presented a number of of abstracts and mini oral presentations at IASLC's World Conference on Lung Cancer. I had the pleasure and and privilege of presenting on anxiety and mental health at a research project that we did surveying lung cancer patients across Canada. And, And I presented that abstract in Singapore in September, basically showing that there was a major disconnect between oncologists and mental health and and that that needed to be addressed. My own personal research project is one that I'm going to be taking a scientific poster on to the uh, Canadian Cancer Research Conference in Halifax in a week and a half (laughs) in mid-November. And basically, it's if I had a billion dollars what it does is I'm looking at a breakdown, a comparison to the other cancers, how they're funded, their survival rates, the number of people diagnosed, and, and the dollars spent on research and, and showing very frankly and very bluntly how underfunded lung cancer is. But then the paper or the poster also goes further and uses the uh, the standard codes for classifying research in oncology and shows the breakdown of how those research dollars are currently being spent in Canada and how large a proportion of them in Canada are spent on prevention. So even though the 6% number is low, when you take out the dollars that are being spent on prevention, the research numbers across the board get even lower with one sort of exception, and that is because of the new immunotherapies and clinical and targeted therapies, we're seeing a real upswing in the treatment code. So there's a lot more clinical trials happening around those, but things like survivorship, things like basic cell biology, those are grossly underfunded in comparison to other cancers. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing, Andres. It's just, um, it's really, really inspiring to hear, you know, how involved you are with the community both on the advocacy side and the research side. And I think patient-led research is just so important because, you know, there are some issues that, you know, are the need to be addressed that are, that they're not being addressed, I think, with the larger research community. But 
having these topics be pushed into into the light by by patients is extremely important. So so thank you for all the work that you are doing. My own advocacy has also taken another turn. I was recently appointed to the Canadian Medical Association's Patient Voice, and there it's broadened my view and and I was privileged to attend the health summit in August of this year in Ottawa. And what really struck me was I've been so focused on lung cancer and and all of a sudden talking to the medical community in general, I realized how unaware they were of the tremendous strides that have been made recently in the treatment of lung cancer. And the fact that the genetic testing, the requirement for genetic testing is, I mean, it just has to happen as part of diagnosis. And the fact that these drugs are tremendously expensive and and by and large, physicians are simply not aware of of those two facts. So that larger, getting that larger picture made me realize that it's not just enough for me to talk to the lung cancer community and advocate within the lung cancer community, but also within the larger community, the larger healthcare community and help them become aware of the fact that this disease is treatable and that there are some major breakthroughs happening, but that it's expensive and we need to prepare our medical system here in Canada for accommodating those costs. Absolutely. Yeah, I think those are super important points. I think we may have already touched on this, but in your opinion, what are the current challenges that the lung cancer community faces and and maybe what are the top two challenges that we need to be addressing? You know, it's interesting. Uh, this is a screening pod- podcast, and I would say that one of the one of the major challenges that we're facing is the implementation of at least low dose CT scanning across Canada right now. BC was a leader in it, but we're still a long way from screening all the people that should be screened. Screening criteria are very restrictive. And it's expensive, and, and it takes uh, an, an amount of machinery, an amount of, of expertise to get that done. And I think that we're still working on addressing that. So I think that would be my own personal number one priority is we need to catch this cancer earlier than we are catching it. It's very treatable, very curable if it's caught early. But when most of us are caught at stage four, or in my case, it was 3C, you know, then treatment becomes much more difficult, much more expensive. And, and so I think those are, that's a key component to, to addressing the death rate of lung cancer. I think for me, the second priority would be the mental health status. It ties into the stigma. People start, they isolate because of this disease. They, the mental health piece drives them away. They lose friends. They, they, their family will sometimes shun them. And it becomes really, really difficult. So I think this mental health piece is much more important than a lot of people have given it credit for. Um, and it's and it's very much something that needs to be thought about and addressed and, and part of, of oncologists' awareness. They're not mental health workers, but they have the power to refer. And, and our research showed that lung cancer patients expect them to make those referrals, and they don't. And so that's that's would be my second major piece. If I'm allowed a third one, <laughs> that re- that research piece would be. I mean, I think until we start spending money on lung cancer, whether it's the basic biology or right through at the other end in terms of survivorship, I had a long conversation this morning about what to do with my cracked nails. 
nobody's been on this drug or not very few people have been on this drug for as long as I have been. And I'm starting to see some side effects that are kind of unusual and how to deal with those things. Those are survivorship questions. And I think that that's another whole area of research that needs more funding. And I think that actually through my involvement with the Canadian Cancer Society, I'm understanding that that's a broader issue than just lung cancer. That's across the board. We need to un we need to understand what it's like to survive after you've received this diagnosis. Thank you so much, Angus, for sharing all that. I learned a quote from you, actually, that I really liked. It's on your website as well. Um, I can't control the wind, but I can set my sails. I think that really speaks a lot about your strength your lung cancer journey and it really just you never really know how the world works or how where life is going to take you but it's really a privilege for people like Priyanka and I and other advocates especially young advocates to hear about your wealth of experience and I know we've spoken before but you have this quality about you that you know you can really strike a personal chord and really inspire uh, so we we really really do appreciate the chance to get to talk to you today. Thank you, Maya and Priyanka, just for this opportunity. I, I was talking to a few advocates earlier today and, and just sharing that I had this opportunity and they're all excited about it. We, So many of us are tend to be older in this community and, and to see young people stepping up and showing this kind of consideration for us is just really thrilling and inspiring too. That some of you have a connection um, to lung cancer in some fashion, but some of you don't. And it's just like, why us? We're so grateful for it. Thank you so much. I guess it means a lot. And I think, I think that's what's so lovely about our organization is that, you know, we are around 200 students, um, ranging from high school students to college students to medical students, but just a lot of students as well as, of course, our advisors that and doctors that um, guide us throughout the way. But as you said about I would say the majority of us actually don't have a, a direct link to lung cancer. So we don't have anyone, anyone in our family who's been diagnosed or, and oftentimes I think for a lot of us, we don't really know much about lung cancer as do most of the general public, you know, being introduced to it. And, and so for a lot of us, you know, we just, we learn about the issues and just so it's so frustrating. I think when you, when you hear about how deadly lung cancer is, how less funding is being dedicated towards it and just the lack of focus on so many different levels and, and just, you know, they're, they're for, for maybe other diseases, we may not have a solution to be able to reduce the mortality rate, but for lung cancer, you know, if we're able to screen more people, we can catch lung cancer early and we can reduce lung cancer mortality. So it's a clear path, a clear solution to being able to save thousands of lives every year. And it's the fact that we're not utilizing a screening technology that's already developed and well-established is, is I think, you know, what really fuels, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of people's efforts within the lung cancer community. So, so thank you again for your, your kind words. You know, this is a great place for us to wrap up. Thank you, um, Ingus, again, for your time. It truly has been a pleasure and honor to talk with you. And as Maya said, to learn from the wealth of knowledge and experience you've had. And we truly appreciate all of the work you are doing as well and the inspiration you give to your fellow advocates, including our team here at ALSI. And thank you as well to our listeners for joining on this episode of the Alcee podcast, and we hope you enjoyed it. Please keep an eye out for upcoming podcasts and events, which will be listed on our website at www.alcsi.org. And today is a very special day. It marks the first day of Lung Cancer Awareness Month. 
So if you're listening to this podcast in November, um, just please keep in mind that it is Lung Cancer Awareness Month and that um, there are a lot of lung cancer organizations um, that are looking for people to get involved. So if you're any bit interested, please feel free to check out the events that might be happening near you across the different lung cancer organizations. So thank you, everyone, and have a great day. Thank you.